I'm Wayne Rubin, and I want to welcome you to the podcast, Hard Yards in Leadership, where we explore the tough leadership challenges experienced by successful leaders along their journey. I hope hearing their stories will help you predict, prepare, and survive the inevitable challenges you will face on your leadership journey. Let's get into it. G'day, everyone, and welcome to Hard Yards in Leadership. And I really want to share with you how much I'm enjoying the process of getting to meet different guests for the show and getting to know them. And I am just so buzzed by the entrepreneurial spirit of so many of my guests. And, and Chris Simon, who's, who's our guest for today, is a classic example. These people have an idea, they go out and get funding, they make something happen, and often they get picked up and, and bought out or whatever it might be. But it's their spirit that really drives so much innovation in the world of commerce and getting to know the people who are prepared to take those risks and run with their ideas, what an amazing experience. And, you know, it's a thrill for me that I get to share a certain amount of that with you guys as well. So my guest for today is Chris Simon, and, and he is the technical co-founder of InLoop, um, which is the home of Australian fintech success stories, Flexi Schools and Lantern Pay. He launched Lantern Pay in 2015 with the goal of disrupting the claim and payments industry across healthcare disability and recovery insurance. In 2022, it was acquired by National Australia Bank to form the foundation of the next generation of high caps, which is Australia's leading claim and payments mechanism. Since 2021, Chris has been coaching startup uh, CTOs through DevCycles technology, as well as supporting executives and boards with strategic technology advice, engineering teams with training, mentoring, and consulting. So I want to chat with Chris I'll be exploring the hard yards of becoming a leader when it was never really his intention. I'll be talking to him about how leadership skills can be learnt in the most surprising places, and that comes up quite often in the stories of our guests. How close to disaster he got from not giving employees enough direction because he wanted to respect them, and that whole space of respect, delegation, how much direction to give, we all struggle with that, right? And how he realised that how he deals with his own frustrations ultimately became a cause of significant tension in his team. Now, you're going to really enjoy listening to Chris and his stories. So with that, welcome, Chris. Thanks, Wayne. It's great to be here. Great to have you on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. So let's go back to the early stages of your career and, and maybe you could share with us when was your first leadership role? Yeah, it's a good question. It's an interesting one because within Loop, when we got started, it was a, a very small team. So it wasn't so much a leadership role uh, in terms of people leadership, but there was definitely like a technology leadership role. You know, I was driving the technology strategy and implementation right from the beginning. But it actually took quite a while, I think, before I started to have some people notionally reporting to me. You know, it took a while for us to build the business to the point where that where it warranted that, which is probably good. I, mean, I was quite young when we started the company. I think in my sort of early to mid-20s, I was probably hopelessly immature and not ready to be in a people leadership <laughs> position, you know, as evidenced by, you know, some of the mistakes I made when inevitably people, you know, the business started growing and we started to need to hire more people that sort of fit into my team. You know, so probably about five or six years in, we started to to get some people in. And, uh, you know, again, it was it was quite small to start with. I think our first employee was a sort of an intern. Uh, and then we got a, a grad straight out of uni. And then a couple of years later, a more senior software developer joined the team. And it just kind of snowballed from there, I guess, uh, about a year or two later, we took some investment and grew quite rapidly. And then, you know, sort of before we knew it, we sort of had something like 20 or 30 engineers. And then that, that grew again when we 
you know, started Lance and Pay, and uh, you know, across the whole of Inloop, spread between you know a number of different products. You know, it was starting to get quite big. So, yeah, it was an interesting journey. I guess you know, I've recently been reminded of the analogy of sort of like a you know a frog in boiling water, and you sort of don't notice <laughs> as the temperature's growing. And as I reflect <laughs> on my journey, it feels a bit like that. It's sort of you know, before I knew it, there was this you know vast team around me without really having sort of spotted the point where it transitioned from, you know, I'm on my own to here we are trying to coordinate the efforts of a, of a cast. And I'm sure from that perspective, there'll be a lot of, you know, tech-based founders listening to this to this podcast who'll kind of go, you know, I can really relate to that, you know, coming with aspirations and, and suddenly your organization grows around you, right? Yeah, I think so. And, and it's interesting because when you start your career thinking, okay, I'm going to be a software developer or an engineer, you know, people leadership is, is often the furthest thing from your mind. You know, you're focused on building your technology skills and system design skills, maybe it's user experience or hardware or infrastructure or whatever it might be. And then all of a sudden, you know, I see this all the time with there's a role in technology called a tech lead, which often is sort of a double of a team lead and, a, and expected to guide the architecture and design concurrently. And then certainly as, as you sort of get into roles like engineering manager and then, a, you know, a VP of engineering or director level or, or potentially a CTO, you know, often you do find people that have come through a technology background with with limited sort of formal training or education in leadership or, um, you know, sort of the people and culture skills that are required. So, I was actually quite fortunate when I talk about, you know, my leadership journey. A, a lot of skills that I picked up were actually outside of InLoop. I was a volunteer with the State Emergency Service for a number of years. And I guess for international listeners, that's a volunteer organization in New South Wales, Australia that provides sort of emergency response in the case of floods and storms. You know, I sort of found myself working in the office until 11 or p.m. or midnight and realized, you know, I need something else to do with my life at the moment and started looking around for some sort of extracurricular activities and, and signed up with the SES. It seemed like a good cause. And that was a fantastic organization. And I got some on the ground training, like formal training in team leadership and ended up becoming what they call a deputy controller. So, you know, helping to run the unit that I was a part of. And I found a lot of transferable skills from that training into my uh, you know, corporate career as well. So, so, I was fortunate enough to have some formal training, even though in the work setting, it sort of happened very organically. It's such an interesting way of coming into leadership skills development because it's something that I'm always keen to explore with our guests as to how they actually started to kind of learn the skills of leadership because so many people come in, particularly founders in organizations and particularly, particularly tech-based. And the burden of leadership usually precedes the getting of leadership skills. And I guess, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a great take for a lot of our listeners to think, you know, if you can look for things in your extracurricular life that will give you experiences that you know are going to come in handy later on, what a wonderful way of kind of building towards some of the responsibilities you're going to have in your own business in years to come. Absolutely. I'm, I'm a big advocate for, and I, you know, when I'm speaking to younger people, I encourage them to get involved in clubs and societies at university and so on, and to take on leadership roles in those organizations. And, you know, I'm, I'm strongly recommending that they recognize how transferable the experience that they, they gain in those settings will be. And interestingly, this is not a personal story, but just on that point, I was curious to note a couple of years ago, I think it was some, a guy called Simon Wardley, who's a, a strategy expert out of the UK was noting the strong leadership experience he was seeing with people with strong gaming backgrounds, particularly in online massive multiplayer games where they have to coordinate large groups of people you know, in their gaming activities, you know, things like World of Warcraft. And he was finding people coming out of that and they, they didn't even realize what they were picking up there, you know, coordinating teams of 40, 50 people towards a, a common goal, a mission that they had in the game. And they were coming out with, you know, 
people coaching experience, with coordination and organization experience, you know, organizational structure, and helping break down a goal into sort of sub goals that smaller groups can attack. <laughs> completely transferable. I can't claim to have that experience myself. I, I never had the time to get into that level of gaming with the business, but um, I, I found that a fascinating little anecdote there. It is, and and it reminds us that when it comes to kind of the core fundamentals of leadership, they have nothing to do with the industry that you're in. You know, whatever industry you're in, there's always kind of this this sense of kind of there's all of this inside knowledge you need to be successful in this industry. And maybe there isn't, maybe there isn't. But the leadership part, you know, if you're dealing with people, you're dealing with people. Absolutely. And and to be honest, I when I when I started getting some formal training, I became a big fan of a couple of, I guess, formal models, partially because I had at that point been struggling with a few things in, in leadership. And these models really helped me make sense of what was going on and, and start to deploy some different approaches. But, uh, you know, over the years, you know, while I still find those models valuable and I, and I use them when I'm coaching people to help them understand, I've sort of, I guess, collapsed them down in my head into a very simple mantra, which is that it is fundamentally about people and relationships. And that's, you know, every leadership challenge I've ever seen, if I, if I reflect back on it, it comes down to that, people in relationships and, you know, the corollaries to that around trust and, uh, you know, the term these days, psychological safety, which kind of embraces a lot of those, those concepts. But, you yeah. know, but it's hard. It's about, you know, people, relationships and how much do you trust each other. And if you can find a way to foster that, to, to help people get to know each other, to build a, awareness and like... I guess the word is um, not just familiarity, but understanding of each other and empathy for each other, then, you know, a lot of other leadership problems kind of self-solve, particularly when we're talking about people leadership. Obviously, I think there are other aspects. You mentioned, you know, industry knowledge. And I think, you know, there are a lot of, you know, this is one of the challenges that leaders struggle with is that there's a lot of hats you have to wear. And, and some of them are things around strategy, you know, business strategy and, you know, being responsible and accountable for risk, like legal risk and, and other sorts of things. You know, th- those I think require specific skills and, and knowledge, but certainly, yeah. If we focus on the people aspect, and you know, motivating people, supporting them, helping them become their best selves in, in the effort of, you know, working together towards a common goal, I definitely have come to the view that you know you can you can always break it down to, you know, the people and the relationships and the trust, and, yeah. and those are the that's the fundamental. It's great advice for leaders listening to this who are kind of like in the earlier phases of their leadership journey because I think one of the things that people often experience is as they set about trying to learn leadership skills and you mentioned yourself you sort of looked at different models and you know there's there's a plethora of advice out there. I mean almost kind of too much and you know I think people can often kind of get a bit kind of lost in in just mm. you know, all of these different pieces of advice and just boiling it down ultimately, you know, it, it is about people, it is about relationships and and if the foundation of trust is in place, you probably have a reasonable chance of working stuff out and if the foundation of trust isn't in place, you're probably going to struggle. This idea of trust and, and relationships, it's interesting because there's a – when you dig into it and start to break it down in you know more detail and obviously every situation is different but there's commonly – different qualities to the relationships between people in a team and between the leader and the team. And I think, you know, maybe this is a cultural thing, but certainly in, in Western environments, which typically have a, an element of hierarchy to them, you know, there's a extra challenge for the leader, which is that you're trying to build trust and a strong relationship in a situation where there's an inherent power dynamic that you can't ignore. And so, that's different to the relationships you might have outside of work and different to the relationships that you'll be trying to foster between you know, colleagues within your team. And, and I think that's something that also that 
I made errors in regard. You know, I tried to t- treat my team like my friends, and and uh, you know, like and and we became friends certainly. But you can't ignore the fact that from their perspective, you're still their boss. You know, you've got power that they don't have, and and that power dynamic is is one that I think is often ignored as well. But when you come back to those fundamentals, that it's about you know relationships and people. And you really, honestly, and, and with open eyes, look at the relationship. You, you can't ignore that that power dynamic is part of the relationship. And it, and it has to be, you know, you have to be aware of it and cognizant of it, I think, as a leader. Yeah, totally, totally. So, Chris, I'm keen to explore some of the more challenging moments of your leadership journey. And, you know, you, you talked at the beginning about, you know, how the, the team started to kind of grow around you. And then it was suddenly like, oh, my gosh, I've got, I've got these people to lead. Can you remember in your early days the first big thing that that came to you that that really rocked your boat as a, as a leader? Do, do you have a specific instance you could recall? Yeah, there's more than a few, unfortunately. But um, yeah, it's um, the. I guess look, I'll start right at the start and where I really sort of just out of the gate I struggled because having been sort of working you know, on my own for so long and not completely on my own, I should say, you know, there were co-founders in the business and at least one of them also had a technical background and he and I collaborated closely on a lot of the technical work. But, you know, that's again, a different kind of relationship. We were co-founders, we were, we were friends before the business started. And then we started to hire people and it was like, okay, Chris, you have to get this team, you know, we've hired these people, we're spending a lot of money on them. The goal is that you'll be producing more work than you would do on your own, right? Like that's, that's the ROI of hiring. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, your business, you, you need to be producing more value than you're sinking in costs. And labor is expensive, especially, you know, when you're a startup, that's the biggest cost on the PL for sure is the, you know, is the labor cost. So, you know, I felt that keenly, that responsibility to the business keenly. And, and I really, to be honest, had no idea how to, what to do about it. I thought, oh, well, I've just been taking people's random thoughts and ideas and turning it into software. So, I'll just give these people random thoughts and see what they come up with. And <laughs> you know, how did that, go? that was hopelessly unfair to them in hindsight. You know, I mean, like, because again, there's that, you know, I refer back to that power dynamic that they weren't co-founders. They didn't have the context and the knowledge or, you know, a felt sense of the authority to, you know, to make significant decisions. And so effectively I was sort of throwing them off the deep end with very limited guidance. And, you know, in, in part, it was very well-intentioned. You know, I was reading advice, you know, you want to be a servant leader, you want to empower your team, you want to get out of the way and just solve problems for them so they can be productive. But if you've not given them clarity on what's expected or clarity on what the constraints are, that's not fair to them, really. And, and that, that's probably the first mistake that I made. And, you know, building on that mistake, because I hadn't really yet learned a lot of this stuff, I was like, well, What's wrong with them? Why aren't they <laughs> delivering? <you know? laughs> Natural reaction. <laughs> Natural reaction. And, um, you know, it, did t- it took me a while to sort of get my head around the fact, well, no, it's that's, that's your job. Like, it's your job to make it clear for them. And so, I've, I've become, while I am passionately uh, an advocate for servant leadership and, you know, empowering teams and, and helping them be autonomous, I guess I've sort of learned through that experience and, to be fair, have tested my new approach in, with more recent experience and found it to be very effective, which is that, you know, to acknowledge people are not all the same. It's not one size fits all, but people are not the same at the same time either. People are constantly changing and evolving and they will, they can get to the point where you can just give them some vague ideas and trust what they come out with. But, you know, you can't do that on day one. Like, <laughs> that's, that's not realistic and it's not, it's not fair. So, you know, sort of evolved, I guess, a uh, 
you know, the terminology, I guess, in the, in the literature and theory is situational leadership is one that I'm really, you know, a strong believer on. And it's, a, I guess, a close cousin of it, adaptive leadership, which is, you know, taking into account the context and the, and the task and the individual and not just the individual, but the team and the team dynamics and where they're at at a point in time and then adjusting your leadership style. And by and large, what that means is in the early days, being comfortable being a bit more directive. You know, I like to say be directive without being a dictator and be assertive without being an ass. You know, you can you can provide guidance and you can be clear about what that is and say, look, you know, here's the non-negotiables. And that doesn't mean that you're violating some sacred notion of the servant leader because you're actually doing them a favor. You're giving them what they need, which is clarity. And then as they learn about the context, about the company, about the the domain about the customers about the technology that they're working in over time then you can start to back off that directiveness and allow them to sort of grow into you know taking a bit more initiative in in what they're doing and then i guess you know in parallel to that this idea of like starting out with a high degree of directiveness and, and winding it down you know there's a concurrent notion of how supportive are you and i think some people think that they're opposite ends of a spectrum but the, but i don't think they are i think they're you can be directive and supportive at the same time and then you can dial them up and down independently and you know by supportive mm, i mean yeah. being very encouraging and, and highly motivating and very engaged and active and you know so sometimes i say to, to sort of leaders that i'm coaching now like you can be democratic you can help the team can make the decision but you know the directiveness that you bring is making sure the decision gets made and then the supportiveness you bring is uh, encouraging everyone that to, to believe in themselves that they've got the knowledge and skills to to make the decision. Yes. But you need both at, at yes. a certain point in time. And then as the team matures, as the individuals mature, and as the team builds trust and safety between each other, you can sort of dial both down both because the team will self-identify what needs doing and the team will feel confident and competent to respond to it and make their own decisions. And so that means you can dial down the directiveness. You don't have to make sure the decisions get made. You can trust that they're going to get made mm-hmm. and you can dial down the supportiveness because they don't need it. And and actually to a certain point, and this I guess leads into maybe the second great mistake I made is once I had sort of learned about this and started, there, there are many others, I guess I'm, I'm trying to like collapse them down to <laughs> archetypes for the sake of the time limit. But um you know, once I sort of recognize, okay, it's appropriate to be directive and then it's appropriate to be supportive at different times, you know, there's a risk of being overly supportive. And I came across this term a couple of years ago that, that really resonated with me as the mistake I had been making that time, which is like what they call an accidental diminisher. You know, you can be so supportive, you almost claustrophobic, smothering, you know, jumping in and providing all the answers and uh, never giving them a chance to breathe. And then you sort of create this sort of learned helplessness where where people just wait for you to answer every problem. And I definitely had an era in my career where I went through that phase. And it was, you know, one part, you know, lack of experience trying to adopt this sort of situational style. And one part, just feeling, I guess, a deep sense of responsibility to the business and the team. I I felt for a long time, you know, I've got to have all the answers because I just need to make sure that everything's going okay. And it took me a while to sort of work out the negative effect that that was having on people in terms of just sort of not giving them room to breathe and to, you know, I guess the way I think about that is, you know, we're talking about it now, all the mistakes I made and what I learned from them and how that helped me become the leader I am today. I wasn't letting them make mistakes, wasn't letting them make, you know, because mistakes are the the heart of learning, I think, in, in my experience. You know, if you only know things because they've worked for you, you don't know when it's going to go wrong. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a great parallel there in technology. There's a software development practice called test-driven development, which is that you write a test that is failing first 
and then you write the code to make the test pass. And the great thing about that is that you know that the test is a good test, that it will fail if the code breaks. There's a lot of people write the code and then they write a test and the test is passing straight away. But you, do you know for sure if the test is able to catch the failure conditions? You, you don't. And I think about that in the context of learning through experience and learning through mistakes because, you know, if everything's sort of come easily to you and you've never made a mistake, you don't know what the failure modes are going to be. But if you've learned through the errors, you sort of, I guess, have a bit more of a nuanced perspective of a broader landscape of scenarios. Yeah. What I'm hearing, Chris, just kind of, you know, summarizing, I guess, some of what we've covered so far is you mentioned situational leadership. And I think for any new leaders, you know, a quick look at that is an incredibly, it's an incredibly powerful and simple model, which helps us identify when we need to be more directive and when we can kind of step back and be more collaborative and, and ultimately just getting into delegation. And um, it's a little bit like bringing up children. You know, you, if you treat a, a, a two-year-old like a 10-year-old, all sorts of terrible things are going to happen. If you treat a 10-year-old like a two-year-old, all sorts of terrible things are going to happen. You actually just you need to make an assessment of the child in front of you and then decide how you treat them. And I think the same is very much true for in the workplace. And another thing that I think just kind of capturing back out, and I know so many new leaders really kind of fear that when they delegate, people are going to screw up. And, you know, I guess, is, you know, part of what you're saying is, first of all, we all screw up occasionally and- if you fear that any screw up is going to destroy your business, it's going to be a long, hard road for you. Yeah, it's it's again just just finding that balance, isn't it? Absolutely, and and you know this is I think at the heart of you know what they found through the research into psychological safety is that a big part of it is is making people feel safe to fail and making it safe for people to surface problems. I think you know some of the initial research was in the hospital setting, and it was you know in environments where there was low psychological safety nurses and other practitioners were scared to report fa- process failures you know because they were you know blame the messenger but once you make it safe to report process failure you can improve the process everybody benefits and i mean that's a very you know it's a process oriented view but it's i think you know it's the same for the, for people if you make it safe for people to own up to a mistake then it becomes a teachable opportunity i heard a, a great um a blog post i can't remember was someone was talking about some big mess up they made as an engineer that accidentally deleted some data in production or something and they went into the office the next day cap in hand thinking they were going to get fired and uh you know because it cost the company hundred thousand dollars or something and, and the company said and the boss said we just spent a hundred thousand dollars training you why would we throw that investment away <laughs> you know? so i think it's a great way of framing it so yeah it's you know definitely echoing i guess reinforcing that point around learning through failure and as a leader making sure your team knows it's okay that uh you know it's gonna be a balance point you can't make the same mistake over and over forever that there's you know there's there's usually a a more fundamental issue going on if that's the case but uh you know at least giving people the opportunity to learn from their mistakes is fundamental i just make a couple of quick comments on the psychological safety piece because i'm I'm sure some people uh, listening to this We'll be grappling a little bit with, you know, what exactly does that mean and, and mm. you know, where where is the balance between psychological safety, which is kind of infers you make a mistake, everyone says, don't worry, it's okay, but also accountability, which says, you know, you're, you're responsible for something. Actually, a lot of really interesting reading in, in this space using, you mentioned ICU units in, in hospitals and so on, and also like NASA and, and, and other organizations where you're dealing with you know, often life and death situations, as well as a lot of money. And there is a, a fine balance between being able to 
help people have the confidence to know that the right thing to do is put up your hand and say, I found an error and by the way, it's probably mine. And at the same time, recognize that there is some accountability for that. But the way that you deal with those things as a leader, you know, you're Emotional maturity is an important piece of the of the puzzle. It's not about yelling and screaming and just you know working through and and recognizing also that however you deal with that with that one person will become part of the folklore of your organization. If that person feels completely baked at a level that's inappropriate, the psychological safety is is gone forever. Equally, if there's no accountability, people kind of look around and go. Is that really how this organization operates? And mm. that's probably not ideal either. So fascinating space. You know, an approach that I've taken, you know, I guess with some concrete and practical advice in regards to that, which is to say, okay, your, your accountability in the case of these errors is to, I guess, take some initiative with respect to what changes are you going to drive to help the error not happen again? And that might be systemic changes, you know, whether it's process or technology and personal changes. What have you learned? What are your takeaways? And how can you share those takeaways with the team? You know, software is, you know, especially in the agile world, has evolved in DevOps, other buzzwords I won't dig too much into, have evolved the concept of a blameless retrospective, which is, you know, when there's an incident, let's have a sober, clear-eyed, review of what happened as a retrospective with everybody that might have any input into it, but it's a zero blame environment. We're not looking to blame people. We're looking to evolve processes and evolve systems. And that's, I think, a very powerful way of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will will be scribbling notes at, at, at this moment. I think that's a really powerful lesson for folks. So, Chris, you, you had a couple of other stories that, that I know you wanted to share of uh, some of the tough times in your journey. You shared one from very early on. Let's move forward a little bit in, in the time machine and, uh, and and share another one if you if you're okay. Yeah, look, I think the I guess I kind of got ahead of myself earlier because I jumped ahead to talking about when I the, you know when I got into that era of sort of I guess being overly supportive and smothering. But in the meantime, there were definitely a few sort of sidesteps along the way, and you know this sort of speaks to the comment I made earlier, which is you know my initial response was like you know what's wrong with the the team members? Why aren't they delivering? my unstated, unspoken expectations. Can't they read my mind? And so, you know, the initial response to that was, okay, well, we need to get like a more experienced person, stronger engineer or, or whatever. And so, we we did try that. And that was probably, you know, one of the more really challenging moments in, in my career because I hadn't really learned the real reason why there'd been issues in the past. So, I guess you view it as a very externalizing approach to solving the problem. Okay, well, we'll just get and a different person rather than interrogating the systems or the processes or, or even myself as a leader. And so, you know, and that, that sort of, I guess, in hindsight, had a very predictable outcome, which is that it, it you know, was not successful. And, and I guess primarily for the same reasons, but even worse, because I built up the expectations around the solution. You know, I'd sort of thought, okay, well, this person's so great. Like, how, how can it still not be going well? And, and that was a real catalyst for, I guess, a bit more introspection and a bit more you know, what could I have done differently in the situation, which which was, you know, really positive for me as a leader in my journey. But it did take, and I think the reason I want to share that story is it's like, you know, I made the comment before, you can't keep making the same mistake over and over again. And then there, there I did it multiple times before I really got the lesson. You know, I guess it's just a sort of, uh, I guess, highlight, you know, if people give themselves a break, like you probably are going to make these mistakes a couple of times. Like that's just, it's just realistic. These are hard lessons to learn. And, and one instance is not necessarily going to give you 
all of the insights you need to understand really what's going on. But I think that, you know, people that are, you know, maybe investing in themselves enough to be listening to a podcast like this and to, you know, to be trying to work out what takeaways they can take, hopefully they are also going to be able to sort of recognize that the intrinsic advice there is, you know, you do need to be introspective. You do need to look at yourself as a leader. You know, you bring a lot to the table and not just in terms of your capabilities, but it can sometimes be hard to see how much you shape the culture of the organization and how much your mood shapes things as well. I've seen this happen with leaders in economy. There's this another term for it I've come across. You know, I do find myself coming across these terms and going, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I've seen that before. This one was um, the concept of emotional contagion, the idea that in a work setting or in an environment, you know, emotions can be contagious and whether that's joy and jubilation or frustration and anger. And the interesting thing about the research into that phenomenon is how much more contagious the leader is because they're so visible and there's this sort of, I guess, intrinsic, you know, people intuitively are attuned to the leader's state of mind more so than they are to each other's. And so, that was a, an interesting one as well because I think that probably had a, an effect, you know, the more frustrated I got, the more frustrated the team members got and it became this sort of vicious cycle. And so, it became, you know, you mentioned before about emotional maturity. I think it's so critical because you have to recognize, you know, what energy are you bringing into the room and recognize that as a leader, you are you're shaping the energy in a, in a far more significant way than other people. You do have to hold yourself to a higher standard there, I think. I completely agree. You know, we, we, we sometimes, you know, use this concept of the, the, the leader's shadow and, you know, our shadow late in the day is radically bigger than, than we are. And I think, I was going to say new leaders, but I've worked with plenty of experienced leaders as well who forget that, you know, particularly as kind of the CEO of you know whatever your business is or whatever the unit is that if you're the top dog in in that space you can be on in a meeting and be on your best behavior and you can walk down the corridor to go and get a glass of water and people notice the look on your face even mm. though you think no one's even looking at you and yeah very visible <laughs> yeah exactly and just you know little quips to you know, someone that they walk past or, you know, whatever. It might be the cleaner or whatever it might be. But that that little quip can, again, th- these things become folklore. And it's a, I guess, something that I hear from from leaders sometimes is it's such a high standard and it's like, yep, <laughs> it's just how it is, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and it's a it's an inevitable consequence of, you know, what we talked about before, that, that inherent power dynamic because people are aware of the power that you carry and that's why they're so attuned to, you as a leader, like to the to the mood and to your, you know, they think that it heralds some something that's going to affect them, and so they're they're paying attention, and it's you know yeah it's a high standard, but that's the gig, right? Like the, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're listening to Hard Yards in Leadership, where leaders share the stories of their hardest yards in their leadership journeys. I hope every leader who hears these stories recognises that the things that they find hard are the same things that the rest of us leaders find hard too. It's my dream that every leader finds the joy in leading. It will help you be a happier person, a better leader for your business, and a better leader for those that you lead. If you like the show, please subscribe, drop us a review, and most importantly, share to others who may benefit from it too. Now back to the show. And Chris, you mentioned before, you, you know, you talked about things like, you know, when you feel frustrated, people pick up on that frustration, it creates tension and so on throughout an organization. How have you learned to deal with that? Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, some of the things we've already talked about have been really helpful. One of them is uh, recognizing, you know, 
if something's not going right, I start by looking at what have I done or what have I not done to, you know, rather than immediately assuming that, that someone's made a mistake. Was I not clear enough about the guidance or the, or the direction or the context or the constraints or whatever it might be, you know, the expectations. And then beyond that, I look at the systems. I've become a big fan of a, a discipline called systems thinking. There's some great books on the topic. I can strongly recommend a book called Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows. It sort of encourages you to see the world as interconnected parts and, you know, whether that's technology systems or social systems or, you know, a lot of what people in, in my trade are working on now is socio-technical systems. You know, you're not just building software, you're building software to be used by people, but also to be maintained by people. And so, a lot of the decisions we make in how we build this software now these days is how is it going to be maintained and operated? And if you ignore those points, you would build the software in a radically different way, but then you wouldn't have a business beyond the next couple of years because you wouldn't be able to evolve with the changing expectations of your customer base. And this kind of stuff has happened almost organically, but now people are a bit more aware of it and there's, there's an evolving literature around socio-technical systems. But I guess getting back to the idea of systems thinking is that it does encourage you to, to recognize that we're all playing a part in a system and that system exerts pressure on us and there's feedback loops. And yes, as in leadership position, the feedback loops that interact with you have a lot of impact on other people, but there are still systemic processes going on beyond you that you know, so you look for opportunity, like what in the system is causing the outcome that you've seen. And sometimes it's, a, you know, a process thing or a technology thing. Sometimes it's a an onboarding thing or a training thing. And maybe it is a recruitment thing. Like maybe it's the, the wrong person for the role, but don't blame the person. Like the system put them in the wrong position. And and, and this is something that, you know, I guess since we're talking about errors made, um, I used to really struggle with letting people go. And sometimes it had to happen because it just wasn't working. And I, at the time, wasn't equipped to make it successful. And so, of course, I'm the leader. I'm not leaving. So, the other person has to leave, right? That's the <laughs> – unfortunately, that's the way it is. And, you know, so I think over the years, I've broadened the skill set I bring to the table in terms of helping make it more likely to succeed with a broader range of people. So, that's good. But particularly in a startup environment, you know, I talk about a big team of 30 or 40 people. I know there are people listening to this that think – that's not big. We've got thousands of people. What are you talking about? But that's you know that's my experience. I've always walked in these sort of small you know SME type organisations, but particularly in those organisations, I sort of really struggled with when it got to the point to let someone go. Even though I didn't know what else to do, I hated doing it because even through all those other errors that I'd made, I, th- I feel like I'm generally an empathic person and I cared for them and I didn't want them to suffer and I didn't want them to you know to go through the the horror of like losing your job and having to find another job, but something that did help with that is this, this comes from, I think, looking at things as from a systems perspective is they're a great person in the wrong position in the system. And as a small organization, we actually don't have a, a great position for them. So, they're not going to see it this way at the time. You're actually doing them a favor by freeing them to find a role that will actually suit them in a different organization. And maybe this is going to be a bigger organization because People that work well in big organizations don't always work well in small organizations and, and vice versa. But um, that approach made it easier for me to handle that, which I think made it easier for me to handle it in a more compassionate way. And part of what actually helped me recognize that this is, I think, an effective way to go about it was actually coming into contact with someone that I had to let go a number of years earlier. And I'd, I'd been racked with guilt about this <laughs> for years. I'd felt like it wasn't fair to the person. We hadn't given them enough chances and so on. But, you know, it just 
situations being what it was, it, it had to happen. And I, and I bumped into them randomly. And I just felt like I had to say, look, you know, I'm just, I was, I was, I was felt really bad about how it ended up. And he said, don't be, I've totally landed on my feet. I've gone in a completely different direction with my career. I'm not doing software development anymore. I've gone into another uh, adjacent area and I'm loving it and I'm really happy. And, and this is actually where I should have always been. I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah, I did you a favor. Awesome. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's a, a specific instance, but I think the reason I bring it up in that moment is that it's an example of looking at things from a systems perspective is that people do have value and maybe they're just in the wrong spot in the system. And if you can help them find the right spot for them, you know, you're, you're actually doing them a favor. And I got to say, the space that you're in right now, which is, you know, this whole thing about letting people go, which is kind of like our, our new phraseology for essentially saying you're fired, is I think. Just about everyone with a heart who's who's in a leadership role, whether this is your first rodeo or whether you've been going at it for years and years and years, it's still one of the worst things that you have to do. But I think the advice that you give is is incredibly powerful because I think what we kind of put in our heads, you know, kind of in our front of mind space as we confront the decision and as we then prepare for the conversation, which is you know, how often do you have that? You know that conversation's coming, and you have this incredible sinking feeling in, in your stomach, and, and and literally you can just feel sick for for days. But ultimately, if you take that view as per your advice and and go, this isn't a bad person, this isn't a person without skills, but this is not the role for them, and maybe this is not the organisation for them. And I know they're not going to thank me for it now, you know, because there's no point setting people up for for thinking that they're going to say. This is the bad news and have, have someone kind of go, oh, thanks so much. I really appreciate you telling me yeah. that. You know, that's, that's a rare event on the day. But, I, you know, I've had that same situation too, actually a number of times, Chris, where, um, you know, I've run into people, you know, sometime later. And sometimes it's even a matter of weeks and people kind of go, you know, I, I just couldn't kind of confront the reality that this wasn't the right role for me or the right organisation for me or whatever. And I know it wasn't easy to hear at the time, but, you know, it's it's going to be for the best and it pretty much always is ultimately. So, you know, thanks so much for sharing that because I think literally every person listening to this will have moments that they've had in the past where they kind of go, oh, this is my my worst moment and, and many will be thinking of something that maybe in the next days or weeks that they're going to have to confront and, and will be, you know, shuddering at that thought and the anecdote and, and also just hearing from you that, you know, how it's it's never easy but a, a good way of preparing for it and getting ahead in the right space. It was super helpful for folks. We're getting to the end of, of our little journey here. So I have a, a standard little end question that I like to ask, which is kind of a bit of fun. So, Chris, I'm going to give you a bucket of paint and a paintbrush. You get to write something on the wall opposite your workspace. So whenever you look up, you see these amazing words of wisdom to yourself. <laughs> what do you write? Go home. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting question because that was the first thing that jumped into my head. And I think it's come from, you know, something we haven't talked about is work-life balance, obviously, is another big topic that people care about. And I've definitely, you know, maybe it's in the last couple of years having kids and, and recognizing the, the value that, you know, your work can't be the entirety of your life. As I, I sort of alluded to earlier, certainly in the early pages of my career, it was. I was working ridiculous hours. So, you know, I, th I think maybe because my mindset was thinking about that, I was like, you know, I really needed those words go home at a certain time. But maybe it's sort of, you know, there's something behind that, which is to sort of recognize like it's not everything, you know, it's not your whole life, you know. There's a great metaphor, I came up. it's interesting how it's been sort of co-opted by 
corporate speak, but the idea of the rocks and sand in a jar. Have you heard this story of, um, you know, it's supposed to, I guess for the listeners, it's supposed to help you with prioritization. You know, if you, if you fill your jar up with sand first, you can't fit any of the rocks in. But if you put the rocks in first, then you can always fill the space around the rocks with sand. And the advice is meant to be like, just be really clear for yourself. Like, what are your rocks and what are your sand? Like, what's important to you? What needs to be in there? And it's interesting because I hear this repeated in the corporate space as guidance for, you know, we need to make sure that we're all focused on what are the organization's big rocks? Like, what what are the priorities around here? What are we doing first? And then letting the other work slip in around it. And, uh, you know, it's valuable in that context. But I did some reading on it because I wanted to share this with somebody who was, you know, struggling with some prioritization challenges at work. And I came across the fact that the origin of it was actually meant to be encouraging people to recognize that your family and your friends and your hobbies are the big rocks in your life. And- <laughs> And maybe the work should be the sand that you slip in around it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, that's not to say that people don't and shouldn't get immense, you know, joy out of their work life. Absolutely. And I I certainly have and I do to this day. But, you know, I guess it's just with age has come a recognition that it's not everything. It's a great parting thought. A massive believer in work-life balance and people kind of sometimes say, what advice would, would you give your, you know, 20-year-old self or your 30-year-old self or whatever it might be. And, you know, I always get back into this space. It's, you know, the, the thing that I I have few regrets in my corporate career, but actually I kind of wish I had go home written across the wall <laughs> a lot earlier in, in my career. And exactly what you're saying, that, you know, the biggest rocks that you should put in first aren't actually your work things. You know, you, it's very hard for your team to see you as a well-rounded person in a leadership role when you've crafted a life for yourself that doesn't allow you to be a well-rounded person. <laughs> that is such a good way of putting it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's powerful. And, and you know, a lot of people were listening to this early in 2023. And, and you know, I think well, I'll take liberty of saying, you know, a message from both of us to everyone listening is, you know, have a good hard think about which rocks you put in first and and for most of us, I think that that's not going to have a business name written on it. <laughs> absolutely. Hey, Chris, this has been absolutely fantastic. I've really enjoyed learning about your your journey, and um, and I want to thank you tremendously for also being so willing to share some of the more vulnerable moments of of your leadership journey, because obviously that's you know that's what this podcast is is all about, and for our listeners who. I am a hundred percent sure we'll get so much value out of you know hearing the stories of you know folks like yourself and and some of the lessons that you picked up along the way and also just recognizing that these things that they find hard, you found hard, I found hard, mm. they are hard. And there are things that we can do to kind of make them better. And hopefully listening to things like what we're putting out today. It's going to help people um, on their journeys as well. So before we do a sign-off for folks who are interested in catching up with you or learning more about what your services offer and whatever else, do you want to do a quick little this is who I am and and this is where you can find me? Yeah, sure. Yeah, so these days I've sort of stepped away from day-to-day involvement within Loop. I'm still involved with the company uh, at a board level, but I, yeah, so I'm providing those coaching services. Uh, the, the majority of what I do is coach startup CTOs, so first-time 
senior technical leaders in a, in a startup setting. I think that you know that's that's what my whole career has been. It's what I'm most equipped to to help with. Um, I'm certainly not going to offer advice to people working in large enterprise. I've got no experience with that. I'd be absolutely hopeless at it. But if you're in a startup, and particularly if you've got responsibility for the technology arm of that startup, you know that these are the type of people I'm trying to help. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Search Christopher Simon. I'm on Twitter, Chris Simon AU. Those are probably the two main places. Or you go to devcycles.io. So, do some blogging there on a range of topics, technology and leadership and startup and so on. And we'll put some of those links uh, with, the, with the podcast as well. So, again, a huge thanks, Chris. So, I appreciate your time. Thanks very much, Wayne. It's been great. Really appreciated uh, your uh, hosting as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another incredible episode where successful leaders share their hardest yards. If you enjoyed it, Don't forget to let people know by sharing the episode around and rating and reviewing the podcast on the platform you listen on. Feel free to join our online community on LinkedIn. You can find the link in our show notes. I look forward to seeing you next week. Meanwhile, keep learning, find the joy in what you do, and keep believing in yourself as a leader.